Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. July 4th, 1928, evening. A polished Fokker F7A3M monoplane soared through a clear London sky. The sun was just beginning to set over a cloudless horizon. The two pilots, Donald Drew and Robert Little, took in the sight from their dimming cockpit. Both of these men had flown for years, and this was shaping up to be one of the most enjoyable trips of their careers. Tonight, their passenger was Captain Alfred Lowenstein, the third richest man in the world. It was his plane they were piloting, making its maiden flight to continental Europe. A few minutes ago, they roared over the English shoreline and out over the English Channel. Water filled their horizon. It was peaceful and calm. Until they heard a rattling on the glass partition behind them. Arthur Hodgson, one of the passengers, was screaming something at them. Something they couldn't hear over the plane's 225-horsepower engines. He looked panicked. Something had happened. Hodgson ducked back for a few seconds and returned with a piece of paper. He had written two words. Captain, gone. Despite them being 4,000 feet in the air, Alfred had just vanished. In an instant, one of the greatest mysteries in aviation history was afoot. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast or Twitter at Parcast Network and at Parcast.com. Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This is our first episode on the sudden disappearance of prestigious entrepreneur and businessman, Alfred Lowenstein. Today we'll be exploring the minute-by-minute timeline that represents the official story for Lowenstein's disappearance. 
Next week, we'll delve into the possible explanations behind this mystery and provide the most probable solution to the vanishing act of the century. Alfred Leonard Lowenstein was a proper sportsman by anyone's standards. He was a fierce entrepreneur and businessman, a loving father and husband, an amateur aircraft pilot, an avid horse racer, and in 1928, the third richest man in the world. But he wasn't the easiest personality to get along with. One of his personal friends described him as, quote, so much a man of impulse that however close and various his associate with others, he remained invariably a rather lonely figure. He was intolerant of opposition and generally even of criticism, with the result that he quarreled as easily as he made friends, and his likes and dislikes, always violent, were often unreasonable, end quote. And that was from a close friend. It's hard to imagine what an enemy would have thought about Alfred. As an avid sportsman, he had all the most expensive toys of the era. Planes, horses, mansions, indoor tennis courts. But the reason Lowenstein is such a controversial figure is not because of his wealth or his habits in competition. It has to do with his sudden and unexplainable death. On July 4, 1928, Alfred was flying as a passenger in his new Fokker F7A3M monoplane. This was an airliner produced in the 1920s that was very small by today's standards. It was just over 40 feet and weighed about 6,000 pounds. But it was very fashionable at the time and very practical for an international businessman. In this particular aircraft, Alfred was heading from London to his home in Brussels on a routine flight. But he never made it. In fact, he never made it past the English Channel. Less than an hour into the flight, he vanished, never to be seen alive again. But before we get too deep into the specifics on this sudden tragedy, it's important to know the man behind the mystery. Alfred was born in Brussels on March 11, 1877. His father, Bernard Lowenstein, was a German businessman and his mother was a Belgian banker. Unfortunately, we don't know his mother's name or really anything about the first 20 years of Alfred's life. All we do know is Alfred lived in Brussels throughout his early years and loved the world of finance. In fact, by 1897, at the age of 20, he had already formed his own business. It was a stock issue and loan promotions firm on the Boulevard Bischofsheim, and it was here that Alfred showed his first true grit as an entrepreneur. But it wasn't the best time to start a business. Around 1900, Brussels was hit by a series of financial crises. Many businesses were forced to close. Alfred's father was one of those unlucky businessmen. He lost his job and the family was pushed into bankruptcy. This might have been the end for this financially inclined family, if not for the work of young Alfred. With his family slipping into debt and his future concaving, Alfred did something that few businessmen would do. He made a gamble. Taking what little money they had left, Alfred left his stock issue and loan businesses behind and invested in electrical and artificial silk securities. Without getting too technical, a security is a tradable asset that is exchangeable between stockholders, a little bit like a stock or a bond. 
Around 1900, Alfred began to sell these securities to businesses around the Brussels area. It was slow going, but his fiercely competitive drive made him a good match for the job. In fact, his hard work brought his family back from financial ruin and the threat of life on the streets. But he didn't do it alone. Alfred's early success as a salesman drew the attention of two very important mentors in the world of finance, Frederick S. Pearson and Sir William Mackenzie. Pearson had been an electrical engineer, and Mackenzie used to build railroads. But these two men turned away from their old occupations when they started to construct tramways throughout Brazil, first in Sao Paulo and then in Rio de Janeiro. It was a huge success, and they were looking to expand their empire. That's when they found the plucky 20-something Alfred Lowenstein in the early 1900s. His extreme work ethic matched their own, and they decided to bring the kid on as a stock salesman. This was Alfred's second opportunity to excel as a salesman in another cutthroat position. He was in charge of selling stocks for a tram system that didn't yet exist in Europe. Most businesses didn't want to invest in a system that was a gamble at best. But... Once again, Alfred excelled in this position. Getting people to sign on the dotted line was something of a specialty for him. Soon, he was selling securities by the million across Belgium, France, and England. This is where his extreme wealth began to take hold. As he raked in commission after commission, Alfred also began to climb the social ladder within the Brussels community. In the early 1900s, He was the shining new star of the finance world, and this prestige quickly drew the eye of his future wife, Madeleine Mizan. She was one of the daughters of a prominent Brussels family and came from old money, but she had a soft spot for the self-made man that Alfred had become. Very little is known about their relationship early on, only that they liked each other enough to get married in 1908 when Alfred was 31 years old. We don't even know how old Madeline was at the time. Two years later, in 1910, they had their only child, Robert. In the novel The Man Who Fell from the Sky, author William Norris described their marriage as, quote, a marriage of convenience. She provided him with social cachet and the distinction of having an extremely beautiful woman on his arm. He indulged her expensive tastes, end quote. Expensive tastes indeed. Madeline was known for being a fashion icon throughout the horse race courses of Europe, sporting the absolute latest fashions in clothing and accessories. They also had mansions in England, France, and Belgium. Together, the housekeeping bills for these three homes was roughly $400,000 a month. That's over $12 million a month by today's standards. The jewelry Madeline wore on a regular basis was also the height of luxury. Some pieces were valued as high as $24 million by today's values, and she had several pieces in this bracket. Madeline's favorite piece in her collection was a necklace that contained 177 matching natural pearls strung with diamonds and set in platinum. It was insured for $10 million. But despite their abundant wealth, the Lowensteins maintained a rather cold relationship. They slept in different rooms, often ate alone, and hardly spent time together. Despite this, the early 1910s were still a good time for the family, each growing in their separate circles. Until 1914. 
Lowenstein's securities career took a sharp left turn in the lead-up to World War I. As the German armies rose around Europe before the war, Alfred was forced to abandon his home in Brussels entirely. Together, Alfred, Madeleine, and Robert fled to London, where they bought a new house and watched the horrors of the war sweep through their home country. It was here that Alfred decided to become a captain to aid Brussels from afar. But he didn't fight on the front line or organize troops. He was much too highbrow for that. Instead, he organized the provisions for the Belgian forces. Bread was his major focus in the war efforts, and he assisted in the deployment of millions of loaves to feed hungry troops as quartermaster for the Inter-Allied Board of Control. But he also turned this into an opportunity to make a quick fortune. The financial deals he made while supplying troops with food pushed him even further up the social ladder. It also strengthened his political connections considerably. By now, Lowenstein had built a reputation for being something of a brute in his business affairs. This is also when his nickname, the Belgian Croesus, came to fruition. Croesus was an ancient Greek king known for his immeasurable wealth, and to many people, Alfred was much the same. When the war finally ended in 1918, Alfred became a veteran captain with the retirement salary to go with it a title that was awarded to him because of his status as a figurehead in Belgian finance. This, in addition to his other massive sources of income, had him rolling in dough. With an arguably absurd amount of wealth, he began to look for a place to spend his money. This is when he found his greatest hobby and passion, horses. More specifically, horse racing. It was here in the early 1920s that Lowenstein decided to make a few additions to his already bulging mansion in England. There was no more room on his property, so he decided to buy the plot of land across the street from his home. Here he built an indoor riding school for horse training, an Olympic jumping course, a full stable, and a private horse racing track. And while they were remodeling, he threw in a nine-hole golf course for good measure. These were golden years for the Lowenstein family. Madeline entertained the most fashionable guests in her indoor tennis courts, while Alfred and his son Robert regularly trained their collection of prize-winning horses. But it was in these blissful years that the greatest tragedy would strike, and where our mystery begins. What followed is the official timeline that forms the unexplained disappearance of multimillionaire Alfred Lowenstein— and how the greatest mind in finance disappeared in a matter of minutes. We'll recount every harrowing minute of this disappearance when we return. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? 
Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. Alfred was living a blissful life of extreme financial success when his family was struck with a sudden end. His disappearance began on the afternoon of July 4th, 1928, at the beautiful Art Deco Croydon Airport. It was located on the southern outskirts of London, and in the 1920s, it was the hub for British commercial aviation. It was commonplace to see the most esteemed businessmen and politicians bustling through its many halls as they organized the world's most important affairs. And it was here that Lowenstein and his employees arrived in two stately limousines. We don't know the exact time, but it was before noon. Lowenstein stepped out of the first limousine to lay eyes on his latest toy, a Fokker 7 A3M monoplane. The pilot, Donald Drew, was already warming up the plane for Lowenstein's departure. Drew was as notable a character as Lowenstein. He was charming, albeit known citywide as something of a scoundrel and womanizer. At the front of the aircraft, the co-pilot was making last-minute checks to the engines. This was Robert Little. He was not as puckish as his friend and had a reputation as an excellent airline mechanic. According to his final inspection, the plane was in perfect working order for the flight. Meanwhile, back at the limousines, four of Lowenstein's most trusted employees stepped onto the tarmac, the first of whom was Fred Baxter. He was a short man, described by some to look like a jockey. He was Alfred's personal valet. Behind him was the suave and sophisticated Arthur Hodgson. He was Alfred's male secretary and most trusted confidant. Often clad in a pinstripe suit, Hodgson wore a neat mustache and carried an umbrella almost everywhere he went. Next came Alfred's two personal stenographers, Eileen Clark and Paula Bidelon. Unfortunately, very little information is known about these two women. But we do know that they were two of the finest shorthand secretaries in Europe at the time. All four of these assistants were necessary because Lowenstein frequently worked while he was traveling. In fact, the interior of this particular monoplane had been converted into a small office space, complete with extra soundproof walls, a comfortable chair, and desk space for Lowenstein and his assistants. The four assistants followed Lowenstein inside the terminal and watched as Alfred made a call to London in the Royal Dutch Airline office. Overheard by an airline pilot and later reported to the press, this phone call was made to Sir Herbert Holt, a longtime friend and business partner of Alfred's. During this call, they arranged a business dinner for the following week, and the two men said their farewells. The next few hours are undocumented, but we can assume that Lowenstein made himself comfortable inside the airport as he waited for his plane's departure later that evening. Just after 5.30 p.m., Lowenstein and his assistants boarded the plane and situated themselves in their seats. The plane roared to life, and by six o'clock, Lowenstein and his compatriots were rumbling along the grassy runway. A minute or so later, the tip of the plane had turned upward and they were flying. Onlookers from the airport later reported that they saw Lowenstein wave through the window and smile. 
The trip ahead was intended to be short. In a few hours, they would hop over the English Channel and arrive in Belgium. Alfred had made the trip dozens of times for business, but this wouldn't be a normal flight. Shortly after departure, Alfred's monoplane climbed to 4,000 feet, the standard height for aircraft at the time. It then slowed to a cruising speed of 110 knots, approximately 126 miles per hour. Once again, this was perfectly standard for the time. According to his four assistants, Lowenstein was enjoying the flight. He was pleasantly and quietly reading a book. But this is the first red flag in the eyewitness testimony. Alfred famously didn't like to read. He would listen to telegrams whenever he had the chance and despised books. Regardless, less than an hour into the flight, the plane crossed the coast near Dover and made its way over the English Channel. They were maintaining a normal speed and making good time. We don't know the exact time, but shortly after the plane crossed over open water, Lowenstein rose to use the restroom in the back of the plane. His assistants would later tell authorities that Alfred looked completely normal as he made his way to the restroom. He wasn't hurt, scared, or depressed. In fact, he pleasantly nodded to his assistant as he went. Once inside the restroom, Alfred closed the door. A few minutes passed, then a few more. After 10 minutes, Lowenstein's assistants began to grow worried. The mail secretary, Hodgson, and the short valet, Baxter, voiced their concerns. At this point, they were worried the elevation might have caused Alfred to fall unconscious or hit his head. The valet was sent to check on him. He crossed the small cabin of the airplane and knocked on the door. There was no reply. He knocked again, harder this time. Still nothing. His fellow assistants were growing uneasy. They exchanged glances as Baxter announced to Alfred that he would be breaking into the small cabin restroom. Baxter knocked the door open and his eyes shot around the small cabin. Alfred wasn't inside. He was gone. In just over 10 minutes, the third richest man in the world had vanished. Panic ensued. The four remaining passengers searched the cabin, yelling at each other over the roar of the engine. Where had he gone? Had he fallen out of the plane? Hodgson pounded on the glass partition separating the pilots from the rest of the cabin. They couldn't hear him over the roar of the 225-horsepower engine, so he wrote two words on a piece of paper. Captain gone. The aircraft was now clearing the English Channel and flying over the French coast. Alfred had been lost somewhere over open water. But where? How? At this point, it's important to note that there was a second door in this particular monoplane. This door led directly from the bathroom to the outside of the plane. Was it possible that Alfred had used the wrong door when he tried to re-enter the cabin? Did he push himself out of the door intentionally? His assistants were in hysterics. Drew knew of an airfield about five minutes away, Saint-Anglevere, between Calais and Dunkirk. According to regulation, the pilot should have landed the plane there. But for reasons never fully explained, Drew didn't land the aircraft at the airfield. He immediately landed the aircraft on a beach adjacent to the English Channel. 
The plane collided with the wet sand and the engine came to a stop. Tempers were high as the four passengers and two pilots climbed out of the aircraft. Although they didn't know it, these six suspects had just landed right in the middle of a military beach known as St. Paul. According to the book, The Man Who Fell from the Sky, this beach was under the jurisdiction of the 1st Battalion Artillery Artificers stationed at Fort Mardique. The battalion adjutant, Lieutenant Marquet, saw the landing at 7.29 p.m. He was none too happy to see an unauthorized aircraft in his territory and immediately sent a formal party to place the miscreants under arrest. At least, that was his plan. But as time would tell, it wasn't going to be a normal evening. Approximately six minutes later, at 7.35 p.m., Marquet arrived at the scene with his men. They saw all six passengers standing outside the plane, confused and scared. It didn't help that a formal military party had just arrived to arrest them. A few minutes later, all six passengers were apprehended and taken to the guard room at the military base. According to the Daily Express, the interrogation that followed was curious. The passengers reported that they had lost their employer over the channel, but they refused to say who he was. Eileen Clark, one of the stenographers, went as far as saying they didn't have the authority to give his name. It's an odd remark. Legally, they had every authority to assist in an investigation, but they were being slippery on the details. Whatever the reason, it took over 30 minutes of pulling teeth to get a straight answer out of the passengers. It was the mail secretary, Hodgson, who broke the ice. He revealed that their employer was none other than the millionaire and entrepreneur Alfred Lowenstein. This charade had wasted a significant amount of time, but it didn't seem like they were being intentionally malicious. In the Daily Express, Marquet described the state of the passengers. Quote, It could not have been play-acting. It would have been impossible for those on the aircraft to have acted as they did if Monsieur Lowenstein had not met with some terrible fate. The two girl typists were in tears. The valet was greatly affected. His teeth chattered with fright and perspiration poured from the brow of the secretary, Hodgson. It was obvious to me that something dreadful had happened, end quote. An inspector was sent to the scene that night the accomplished inspector Bonneau of the Sûreté. He circled around the body of the plane and analyzed the coast. He interviewed each of the surviving passengers and gathered eyewitness testimonies. But he was ultimately unable to solve the case. The mystery had happened miles away and 4,000 feet in the air. The only thing the inspector did offer was a quote to the Daily Expresses. Quote, This is a most unusual and mysterious case. We have not yet made up our minds to any definite theory, but anything is possible, end quote. This was a strange response. At this point, the theory was that Alfred had fallen out of the second door in the aircraft. It seemed like a straightforward case. A few hours later, well past 10 p.m., the passengers were released from military confinement the two pilots were allowed to fly the plane to the airstrip at saint Anglevere, where they should have landed the plane in the first place. And the remaining crew members were driven to Hotel Metropole Calais. With such a high-profile victim, you'd think the investigation would last at least a few days. 
But actually, it was dropped very quickly. There was a jurisdiction problem. French authorities claimed the disappearance occurred over three miles off their coast, so it was not under their authority. The British and the Belgians made the same argument. Because the accident had occurred over the Channel and in international waters, it belonged to no one. This was a hard argument to contest, as no one, including the passengers, knew the exact moment Lowenstein had vanished. But perhaps that was the point. If someone on board had been trying to kill Alfred, they chose an ideal time to strike. As we'll soon discover, someone on board the monoplane was, in all likelihood, a traitor. Had one of Alfred's most trusted friends just sent him plummeting to his death? We'll look at the fallout of Alfred's death after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now, back to the story. We don't know the exact time that Alfred's wife, Madeline Lowenstein, was notified of her husband's disappearance. But it was sometime that same evening of July 4, 1928. She was in Brussels, but she immediately left her home to join the grieving passengers in France. With Colonel Dauphren as a travel companion, she drove over 90 miles through the night to arrive at Hotel Metropole by 5 a.m. on July 5th. According to attendants at the hotel, Madeline arrived looking distraught, dressed entirely in black. She left not a moment to waste, ordering a full search of the channel with a reward of 10,000 francs for any fisherman or volunteer that found Alfred's body. The following morning, skippers and amateurs scoured the shores of the English Channel looking for any sign of life or death. But Madeline didn't stop to watch them. She continued to the airfield, Saint-Anglevere, to inspect the deadly monoplane that had taken her husband's life. According to the airline staff, she was looking for, quote, a message from her husband, end quote. But her hunt didn't last long. The only thing she found was her husband's collar and tie. By the evening of July 5th, Madeline was back in her home in Brussels where she retired to her rooms. It was there that Madeline received the worst news of all. According to authorities, if the body were not found, she would not be able to open her husband's will and her estate would liquefy in no less than four years. Without her husband's official death certificate, she would be penniless. Meanwhile, the search continued across the English Channel as the weather turned for the worst. 
High waves and high seas met the sailors that hunted for the missing millionaire. The two pilots, Donald Drew and Robert Little, were among those searching for Alfred Lowenstein. They had rented a boat on their own dime and set out to find their missing employer. July 7th came and went. Then the 8th, no Lowenstein. On July 9th, five days after the disappearance, the two pilots and the four surviving passengers were summoned to Brussels. Madeleine Lowenstein requested that they be there for an official inquiry at the Palais de Justice. Her goal was to get the official story behind her husband's disappearance once and for all. All six passengers happily obliged. They arrived early on the morning of the 9th and proceeded to provide an official report of the incident. The inquiry was conducted by Judge de la Ruyere, the local magistrate for the district. During this inquiry, the six passengers once again presented their testimony on the events of July 4th. But something peculiar happened. Parts of the eyewitness testimonies were different this time. For instance, the pilot, Drew, initially reported that he had immediately landed on the beach after the disappearance. But during this hearing, he informed the public that he first circled back over the channel to look for the missing millionaire before landing on the beach. This was an odd discrepancy. The pilot didn't have a reason to lie about this detail. So why did he? The following week, the details grew stranger. Originally, the passengers reported that Alfred accidentally stepped out of the aircraft through the bathroom door. But airline experts discovered that an accidental death was simply not possible. On July 11th, seven days after the disappearance, airline experts tested the strength of the doors in various Fokker monoplanes. They wanted to see if someone could accidentally open the door mid-flight. But... RAF pilot George Terrell concluded that opening a door while the plane was moving would be impossible for one man to do, let alone by accident. To open the door, Alfred would have had to push against a slipstream of 120 miles an hour, assisted by two 225-horsepower motors. According to Terrell, the air pressure of these alone would be enough to knock a man to the floor. And if he were able to open the door, his body likely would be caught in the door slamming shut again. Keeping the door open would take an enormous amount of strength. And finally, if the door was opened, a blast of wind would be felt throughout the airplane. But the passengers reported no unusual sounds or blasts of air while Alfred was alone. On July 12th, the British Air Ministry Chief Inspector Major J.P.C. Cooper decided to test this himself. Using Alfred's Fokker monoplane, he ordered the original pilots Drew and Little to once again fly the craft over the English Channel. They performed everything exactly as they had during the night of the disappearance. They climbed to 4,000 feet with a cruising speed of 110 knots. They retraced their exact path out to sea. Once above the English Channel, Major Cooper threw himself against the door violently. According to his testimony, it budged six inches before closing again. Then, according to the Times, a rope was tied around Major Cooper's shoulders. With the help of other passengers, he tried to climb out of the door. This was successful, but only after several failed attempts and with extreme effort. Following these tests, the pilot reported that he felt the plane move every time Cooper slammed his weight against the door. 
When Cooper did open the door with assistance, Drew felt the air throughout the cabin. This made even less sense. If the passengers felt and heard nothing in the cabin, how did Alfred disappear? The next week was a difficult time for the family and friends of Alfred Lowenstein. Alfred's body remained lost, and the disappearance remained a mystery. That was until Thursday, July 19th at 4.20 p.m., 15 days after Alfred's vanishing act, his body reappeared. Jean-Marie Beaugrand was the skipper aboard a fishing boat named the Santa Teresa de l'Enfant Jésus. He was fishing with his crew when they saw something floating in the water. As they drew nearer, it became obvious what they were seeing. A corpse. Beaugrand and his first mate, Louis Legree, formed a net out of a sailcloth and pulled the body on board. They were well aware of the reward money that Madeleine Lowenstein was offering and were hoping that this corpse was the fallen millionaire. It was hard to tell at first. The body was naked down to a pair of silk underpants, silk socks, and dress shoes, and it was decomposed beyond recognition. But there was one clue. On the body's wrist was a metal watch. It was engraved with the words, Alfred Lowenstein, 35 Rue de la Science, Brussels. At this point, much of the crew was threatening to mutiny if they kept the body on board. The smell alone was reasoned enough to push it back into the channel. So Beaugrand wrapped the body unceremoniously in another sailcloth and dropped it back into the water on a line. From there, they towed the body back to port to claim the reward money. They arrived back on shore at approximately 6.40 p.m. at Port de la Colonne. From there, the port commandant, Captain Grecaire, was alerted and they phoned the Lowenstein family. Within hours, Madeline's brother and a lawyer were on the scene. They made their way down the soggy dock and inspected the corpse. After a brief and emotional investigation, they confirmed it was Alfred. They paid the fishermen for their work, and the body was wrapped up again for the trip home to Brussels. But what came next was one of the strangest parts of the entire mystery, the autopsy. Traditionally, an official autopsy is performed to dispel rumors and bring an end to high-scale investigations. But that's not what happened. The autopsy that followed was private, and the details of that investigation have never been fully realized by the public. The physician that was chosen was a Dr. Paul from Paris. He examined the body and removed a few organs for further testing. The remaining portion of the body was sent back to Madeline, who buried Alfred in an unmarked grave in Ava Cemetery in Brussels. This was odd for several reasons. First, why was the autopsy so secretive? To this day, we don't even know the doctor's full name. And second, why an unmarked grave? The Lowensteins had a fortune. This seems like a rather unceremonious end for the once great titan of business. According to Dr. Paul's reports, Alfred had suffered a massive wound in his stomach, which they concluded was most likely the cause of a collision with a rock while the body was floating. Dr. Paul also concluded that almost every bone had been broken. This suggested that the body really did fall from the sky and smash against the water. But Dr. Paul's third discovery was the most controversial. 
On August 14th, 41 days after the disappearance, he reported that trace amounts of a toxic matter were found in Alfred's organs. The press had a field day. If there was toxic matter in Alfred's stomach and other organs, there must have been foul play in the aircraft. He might have even been murdered. The news of the millionaire's murder shot round the globe in hours, but the rumors wouldn't last. One day after this discovery, the toxic matter was revealed to be a false positive. This immediately called into question the competency of Dr. Paul. And remember, the Lowenstein family chose this doctor personally for the investigation. For some, things weren't adding up. But for the time being, any suspicions on the part of the public would be reduced to whispers. It wasn't until September 10th, 68 days after the initial disappearance, that the official story was released to the public. According to the New York Times, quote, Not a trace of poison was found in his body. All the evidence was conclusive that death was due to the fall of 4,000 feet. The investigation disclosed nothing that would support the theory that the financier sought his own death. Sensational rumors of violence are also rejected with emphasis. There is no indication of foul play having been discovered by the doctors in the course of their exhaustive investigation. End quote. But this report only muddied the waters further. If Lowenstein hadn't committed suicide, how did he fall out of the airplane? There was only one logical conclusion. One of the faithful passengers on board the aircraft was lying. Was it the womanizing pilot? The short valet? The male secretary with a mustache? The trusted stenographers? Or perhaps they had worked together, conspiring against the megalithic millionaire? Next week, we'll take a closer look at the possible suspects and explore their motives for murder. Was Alfred killed by a financial rival? Was he murdered for love? And the most troubling theory of all, was he the one behind his own demise? If you're looking for more Unexplained Mysteries, you can find us as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Michael Herman and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.